welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ, and we're joined by Evangelia Artemis Gomez, visual artist, writer, and co-host of the What's Gonna Happen podcast. This talk goes everywhere. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now, trees. <laughs> we, we have a lot of trees in New Zealand, and there are some trees in New York. Yes. But I'm, you've been enjoying trees? I'm very envious of you that you have so many more trees in New Zealand. I've been to New Zealand once, and the nature was definitely my favorite part. Um, yeah, I don't have as close of a relationship with the natural world as I'd like since I've grown up in New York my whole life. So I'm very enamored by the natural movement of trees and the growth of trees and stuff. Um, don't ask me what my favorite tree is because I don't know <laughs> the genres of tree as well as I should maybe. Um, but I think like trees represent cycles and I've recently found that uh, although I'm an extremely adaptive person in many ways, um, you know, my ability to accommodate change uh, in, in other ways kind of needs some improvement. I have a lot of emotional difficulty with like long-term change. Um, and I think, I think it's easy to sweep that under the rug when, you know, as people we're judged for our ability to handle things and kind of like just push through things. Um, but I'm trying to move with change instead of just like grappling with it and putting up with it. And I think trees do. A good job of encapsulating that kind of idea so yes i've liked trees recently <laughs> trees are extremely chill really they they do hang around a while yeah um, it's a long time yes um my my grandpa recently passed away passed away a couple weeks ago um and he was a woodworker so wood was very important to him and just kind of like a relationship with the tactile like world of nature um, living in Greece his whole life, like that is kind of something that was really important to him. And, you know, I mean, we don't, the kids these days don't etch in stone and, and carve wood the way that they used to. So <laughs> I wish we did, but not as much. That's really interesting. You say, um, my family on one side of them, um, the, the branch going back a few generations, um, they were loggers. There's a, a forest in New Zealand called the Kangaroa Forest. And as New Zealand was kind of being built, um, they, they were up there um, living there for several months at a time in those tiny little logging huts and um, working themselves to the bone, um, chopping trees, hauling them out of the forests. And I can't argue that they necessarily had a strong connection with nature in the way that they would articulate it. These were very hard men from a very older time. Mm but I've always been fascinated by the photos of them because there's something about them. These guys have been living in the woods for several months at a time and they're really not connected to what they would call civilization at the time. They're, they're just in this daily rhythm of basically sleeping, waking, working on the forest, going to bed. They, it was absolutely exhausting. And, and these were the kind of hard ass people that my own family kind of, um, really just survived over the generations we like like the the great achievement of my family line is that we're still here we made it we just kind of um one way or another we adapted to change often in a pretty difficult way and often reacting pretty strongly there are there are huge strains of uh, mental illness physical um really misadventure all sorts of scrapes and strangeness all through my family we 
we never really had any money. We never had any social standing. We would do things like get pregnant to the the sons of wealthy people, mm-hmm. but then get kicked aside. It's, it's it's very much that type of saga. You guys weaseled your um, way in. We 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 just we just <laughs> hung around. We we clung. That's really what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting comparison. Like how how do you lengthen the way that you adapt to change? Yeah, we get so much totally. thrown at us on a daily basis. But how how do you how do you make that into a, a longer story arc, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think about all of the you know, as you put it, hard ass people that made sure that I got here and was able to live the cushy metropolitan life that I live. You know, and sometimes you, when I'm feeling you know excessively guilty for indulging in all the things that I indulge in. I like to think that I'm doing it on behalf of, you know, one of the child brides in my lineage who would have wanted to be able to lay down and eat chips and um, scroll through TikTok, but instead had to mother like seven children. You know, I I like being able to do that for her. And I've been thinking a lot about that um, recently, just like the resilience that it took to get here and that even being here and getting the gift of you know a human life is in itself something to be grateful for on a regular basis that is another reason why i think i've been trying to give more credit to trees um because you know they they're resilient in that same way and you know i i started thinking about like nature more in this way and like trying to make an active effort to you know maybe in a way that people didn't really have to in the past. Like you said, like, you know, your family members just woke up and that was how they had to live. They had to live in the woods. They had to chop down the trees. Like that was, that was it. But here we have all these choices and there's this decision paralysis and there's like Chipotle and stuff. And like, we have to make an active effort to like look at a tree and be like, oh my God, like, yes, like I need to be grounded in this. Um, You know, I have like seasonal affective disorder. So winter brings me down a lot. the women in my past were not allowed to have seasonal affective disorder. They would have thought that to be a ridiculous thing, you know, mental illness. I'm probably the first openly mentally ill woman in my family. Um, You know, there are others that I know of, but they're not out yet. Um, But, you know, I used to, I used to not really like, you know, when the trees would change in the seasons, it would piss me off and make me sad. I used to not really be fond of fall either, but I loved Halloween, obviously, and I'm a Scorpio. So this year I was like, I need to conquer this if I'm going to be okay with my identity. Um, And in that, I kind of realized that fall isn't the predecessor to winter. It's its own thing entirely, and it needs to be appreciated as that. And, um, And I came to terms with that by really appreciating the trees and not being like, oh, my God, they're changing color. That means they're going to die instead more so being like they're beautiful as they are now they exist right now as they are and they're not totally collapsing they just are this way right now so yeah it's been taking a lot of instagram pictures of trees recently is what I'm nice to say. <laughs> that's really interesting so i um for some reason i'm thinking of there are, there are several japanese anime and the one i'm thinking of i'm pretty sure is samurai x but they do that very japanese thing of um the very first episode of Samurai X starts with this observance of the seasons Mm -hmm. and they just talk about how things are shifting. This is the time for sake. This is the time for so-and-so. And And it's that really, that really sense of a returning rhythm rather than, as you say, everything's getting cold and dying Mm -hmm. every year just because it's winter. Um, It's, it's interesting as well, especially about the, um, the Instagram side of it. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Treat. You say stocky season, and I'm thinking like you know, like white girl, like it's pumpkin spice latte fall. Like that's like <laughs> our American equivalent to marking awesome. the season. Um, because we we have gotten a lot better, I think, obviously recently about understanding our feelings and talking about them. As you say, I mean, I mean, certainly, my my great grandfather was in World War One. And there was no such thing as mental illness or PTSD. Like it didn't exist as a language category. There were some weird buggers who were shell shocked, but that was a that was a complete othering of that experience. And everyone else just came back and didn't talk about what happened and kind of went on. Um, trees don't talk about their feelings. <laughs> totally, they, they, they're super they badass kind of... for that. <laughs> <laughs> is is there another side of 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 the equation along with sort of understanding? our feelings and talking about them and and putting words to them is there the other side that we're still not doing about how how to move through these seasons yeah totally um i think in general you know it's really good that mental illness is being destigmatized the way it is but i think in turn there's a huge emphasis to talk about our feelings um and there's not as much of the emphasis to listen for the answers that could help us to get out of the situations that we're in. Um, you know, I think we're on step one. I think we need to learn how to integrate like kind of observance as a practice. Um, and that comes with mindfulness. And whenever people hear that, they usually think of meditation. And even when I think of meditation, I already get like antsy just thinking about it. But, um, but observing nature, finding little things in the natural world to focus on like allows me the room to kind of like listen for those things like you know need I need okay I need to slow down like the way that this tree is moving the way that this tree is able to be here even if it's getting pissed on by 18 dogs a day like it's still beautiful and here you know and it's that's something that you can only learn by kind of observing and not by talking things through as much so I do think there is value in like in opening up a little bit more to the world around us. Um, obviously, there's value in talking too. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. But um, <laughs> but a little bit of both. If we're not always on broadcast in every moment of our lives, there might be that that, that space somewhere for totally. It. And we are um, pretty much. I mean, it's really hard to escape that. But you know, many different um, like religious practices. I mean, I'm not a, a conventional kind of religious, but um, but the idea of prayer and meditation kind of are the call and response like you're allowed to pray and kind of talk to the universe but then if you want anything to come of that you need to shut up and listen back so yes for sure nice and and what i'm hearing is that maybe you can do that without having to have a really strong idea of what it is out there you don't have to have a theory of the response as it were oh yeah for sure i mean you know i think there is also people who take it to the extreme and are looking for answers in everything. You know, that you see people who kind of get into that like magical thinking kind of way of living where you're always looking for numbers and everything and looking for signs to do things and looking for guidance in very straightforward ways. But, you know, I, I, as much as I think there is a mathematic to the universe, um, the way that at least higher power works as I know, it has never been that straightforward and predictable that, you know, it would you'd be able to look at the clock and get a sign that something's supposed to happen other than maybe lunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but 
I do respect that there is like this like eagerness definitely in my generation to like pursue you know finding little signs and finding the magic in life I just think that sometimes it can it can get a little dangerous because you're still not quite listening if you're looking for specific patterns if you're if that's confirmation bias um so I think people go in both directions yeah nice I I have genuinely known several people who would get wildly excited by a cereal box (laughs) and then they'd start to do the numerology on the on the the ingredients list and and all of a sudden you're about two hours down a rabbit hole and it's wildly exciting but it's like sugar right it's it's kind of yes but are are we moving forward in any way other than getting super excited by the ingredients list yes and the numerology of things yeah Yeah. exactly i mean it is you know part of listening to the universe is inherently acknowledging how small we are in comparison and you know how insignificant we are and how much we have to learn and if you're looking for patterns that are telling you that you're important still you're still like satiating that ego in a way i think um but a little bit of both i mean when it hits 11 11 i do make a wish still i'm not gonna nice. lie. i do like the little magic and things <laughs> <laughs> um on on these journeys that you that you're on which always sound really fascinating to me whenever we've talked um at this point what what does a good day feel like what's what's the rhythm of a good day of a good week of a good year I, do you do you think in those terms um, I have a hard time with that, honestly, because sure. um, I think if you think of things in terms of good days, it becomes a lot easier to think of things in terms of bad days. And sure. um, I try not to be so black and white with it. Um, but I've found that a good day is a day in which I've had a fulfilling uh, interaction usually with, you know, either myself or another person. myself more so recently because I haven't had an open dialogue with myself I found out that all of my friends talk to themselves out loud on a regular basis and have been doing that forever and I only talk to myself out loud if I've like broken a plate and I'm yelling at myself um or if I'm having like a mental breakdown and I'm like locked in somebody's bathroom and I need to talk to myself in the mirror so I've been trying recently to like extend my like monologue outward and um, talk to myself more. So my good days recently have been days where I'm able to like gently um, talk myself out of feeling negative emotions instead of turning to like a vice Um, and days that I've been able to, you know, I've, I've practiced this by like sitting and watching TV and actually talking out loud to the TV and like talking to myself about the TV um, because I'm trying to get more comfortable being alone and uh, I realize that I can keep myself company and I'm always going to be there for myself. And that kind of pulls me out of like the codependency I have with a lot of habits and a lot of people and stuff. So, yeah. So a good day for me is like a day that I feel like I can I can live it independently mm-hmm. and um, have gained something from it. had I had a good conversation, even if it's just with me. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, someone that I'm very close to um, extensively practices talking to herself in a really good way and as you say this it's it's not quite a running narrative but it, it seems to work and then part of what i think she's found is this idea of um as you said just now being able to very consciously um talk yourself out of some of the rabbit holes that our brains can go down you can almost talk to your own mind mm-hmm. totally which which i find fascinating as a um and and you were saying which also really interested me um that sense of sometimes struggling to be by yourself mm-hmm. or or being um i think maybe getting so much energy and and um things from from being around other people 
you're still getting used to solitude in that sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was an only child growing up, so I've always been alone and I've always played alone. Um, and I'm so jealous of Angelina <laughs> of, of that. I, you should I, be. It's <laughs> honestly great. I don't mind being an only child. I used to a lot more, but I'm very content with that I have my own space now and um, and I've, I've gained a new appreciation for it. But um, I think in that I, I've always been lonely and I've always wanted, sure. you know, to have some kind of connection to somebody outside myself so I've always looked for that and and recently I'm really trying to solidify the a positive relationship with myself because like you said we can get in these like rabbit holes in our, our brains and not realize when sometimes we're saying something to ourselves that isn't what we're actually thinking or what yeah. we actually believe like I find that I I get most frustrated with myself when I feel furthest away from my own integrity and it's a lot easier to like curb myself and stay within the reins of my own beliefs when I have to say out loud what I'm thinking. And like, you know, it looks really schizophrenic because sometimes I'm talking to myself and I'm like, you know, oh my God, like, what do we do? Like, we're so stupid. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. Calm down. It's fine. I'm here, you know, and like literally like parenting myself kind of, um, and like using the, that gentle talk, like I said, when I break a dish, I'll be like, oh, my God, you fucking idiot. Like, you know, and then having to reel myself back and be like, no, 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 it's OK. It happens. We all make mistakes sometimes. And like learning to make that that inner voice um, a positive, constructive one instead yeah. of one that just like constantly beats you down. That's um, I, I've, I've certainly known people and it's certainly been a strain in my own family in various places where um, you have people where that voice is not their voice. It's the voice of someone who's been dead for 20 years and you're still having the conversation with someone who is not actually there and you need to totally. shift that conversation. Yeah, we talk to ghosts a lot more than yes. we think we do. And sometimes they're the ghosts of like former versions of ourselves that we've grown out of. But it's, you know, you think you know yourself as something. You think you know yourself as this kind of klutz or this kind of whatever and you're just that person. But you don't have to be. And the second you give yourself permission I find that it's easier to give other people permission too. like, you know, my friend uh, was supposed to come over and help me work on an art project yesterday. And she was supposed to, she was like, I'll be there at six. And I was like, okay, she got here at 10 PM, which is really late. And I'm late to everything, but I'm like, you know, like a cute half an hour late. She was four hours late. And like, you know, I was like, okay, like, obviously I need to draw a boundary. I need to say like, you know, hey, if you're going to be late, you need to tell me uh, in advance so that I don't waste my day sitting here with all the art supplies waiting for you. But, you know, it's OK if you are late, you know, just tell me in advance. And like when she got here, it was fine. And I had no animosity. Like it was all good, you know, because I drew that boundary and she agreed to it. And that was that. Um, whereas if I hadn't been practicing this kind of like, you know, self-love and reminders and stuff like that, I might have taken it really personally that she was late. So. So yeah, so it's, it's allowing me to be a nicer person, I think, in a lot of ways. Nice. It's really interesting hearing you say that. Like, like, um, and especially about the thing about, about how, how we can sometimes feel lonely, especially when we're younger. Um, I think when I was, um, I mean, pretty much the whole time, but certainly all, all through growing up, um, I fundamentally didn't understand human interaction on a really basic level. And because you kind of grow up with this, it's very hard to actually know that. Like I didn't realize that I was at about a 45 degree angle to almost all of the social cues and everything that, that everyone kind of understands. And so the one thing that I found was this, um, this combination of being really excited and energized when I would like have a friend over to play or when someone was, yeah, all those type of things. 
But at the same time, which I think a lot of people have, it would also be very exhausting, just the basic things of having to kind of put on my human face and deal with other people. And there's totally. that real tension, right? Like, like you can't just sit in your own cave, but the world's exhausting, man. It's, it's, it's a, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't have yourself to take solace in, if the second you return from an interaction and all you can do is beat yourself up, it's like, you're always going to be exhausted. And I, the only yeah. reason that I'm making this change is because I am finding myself to be fundamentally exhausted. You know, I, I love people and I love interacting with people. It's really disappointing to me to leave a social interaction feeling like I've lost a part of myself or feeling like, you know, I'm I'm way too tired to do anything for myself afterwards. And I feel like, you know, that's not because people are just fundamentally draining. It's because, you know, I'm obviously not giving myself the aftercare that's needed um, when I enter those social situations. But I definitely agree. I think we all mask to a certain extent because um, we're taught to I mean there's like different rules you do have to follow in social interactions and if you want people to like you you have to add in some extra stuff sometimes <laughs> um, and that yeah that can take a lot out of a person especially if you are like a caring and empathetic person like it seems like you really do like talking to people and are interested in what they're saying and, and in, a, in a way you're giving a little piece of your soul to a person when you do that so you need to make sure that you have some room for yourself when you yeah. when you get back and it's such a hard thing to learn, right? Especially if we if we take lessons from others. Um, I've certainly heard you talk about this on your own podcast. You're, you're taught sometimes from a very young age that it's the right thing to be fully generous, to be fully giving, to be always the person giving the energy to other people. And you see people, and, and frankly, I think especially women over time evolve sometimes where they've just given so much of themselves in every version to everything else and there's nothing left. And then at some point, sometimes you realize that and you can get very angry. Oh, yeah. There's Righteously so. Totally compassion fatigue. Like, you know, and that's that's another reason why like positive self-talk is so important because, you know, it can make you feel like a really bad person to get pissed off at somebody for just being themselves because you've been so compassionate to them and you're tired of giving them pieces of you. You know, it, it's really hard to realize that, you know, sometimes no one was asking for those pieces, you know, holding yourself back and saving pieces. Like I found that, you know, going even on dates and stuff with people like you know, as I've gotten older, like to hold back a lot. And like, I don't need to give them my life story when I meet them. I don't need to, you know, try to connect with people on an emotional level immediately. If it happens naturally, it happens, but it's okay to save parts of yourself. In fact, you should, because not everybody, you know, and, and not to say that it's a moral thing of any kind, how much you want to share with somebody, but not everybody necessarily deserves those deep parts of you. And once you learn to hold those close um, and only give, you know, all, all that energy to people that you really want to make room for, it makes it a lot easier to, like, not get super pissed at the people you love for loving them too much. Because, you know, you can hold the door open a million times, at, but you can't get mad when people don't say thank you if it's not what they asked for. It's almost as though there's a gear somewhere between zero and a hundred. This is right. remarkable. Well, eventually. yes, that's a good way of putting it. I am learning that for the first time recently, but yes. Are you finding as you, as you keep learning and exploring these things, are you finding that there is some kind of sustainable energy cycle as it were? Like, like, is there something that you, that you want to move towards as a kind of ongoing state? Yeah. I mean, I think I just have a lot of respect for people who are able to, um, stand by their boundaries a lot. Like I have been 
watching certain shows and stuff and trying to take like better things is a really great show and uh sort of is also a really good show both of those shows have um characters that are really good at kind of like drawing boundaries and saying what they're okay with and so i've been kind of idolizing them recently because there's a way to be uh kind and caring and you know and giving more even than the next person and still be able to say no and stop yourself before you move away from your integrity um and you know and as you said i mean women struggle with that a lot you know i think as girls we're socialized to that our importance lays in how much we have to give and support and accommodate um but you lose yourself in that very easily so drawing boundaries i think is like a really good way to maintain that source of energy and sustain that nice and it's, it's interesting you say them um, um looking at business especially and i've had some experience with this one of the real challenges of a lot of business environments is that the kind of optimal strategy, if you will, for success is to be a guy who is um, smart enough to understand the emotions going on around them, but selfish enough to basically ignore mm. them and, and manipulate them. Mm -hmm. And you get that real kind of corporate psychopath behavior. Totally. And, and it's a broken environment where literally if you were just trying to kind of basically game theoretic it out, that is the optimal strategy for success in a lot of business. It's be smart and empathetic, but not actually like kind. Right. You yes. Being basically have all these levers. I think being nice, but not being kind is like something we see a lot in capitalism and something we see a lot in like really toxic, like white systems is just like this, that corporate passive aggression of like, you know, you, oh, you're sick. Like, that's nice. Like turn on your camera. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. That must be very difficult. You can still work from home from your bed. You know, like that pushiness and that like kind of subtle, quiet, we don't give a fuck, but we'll pretend to. That can be a lot more sinister than blatant hatred or, or racism or whatever form it takes because it slips under the rug, like you said, in that sociopathic kind of like, yeah, capitalistic way. There's this, there's, there's this amoral quality, right? Like, like it's not necessarily that people are evil. It's just that there is a machine and mm -hmm. it has parts and those gears must grind. Yep. And that's literally the end unto itself. There's not really a lot beyond that. Yeah, totally. And I really hope that changes when, you know, some of my generation enters the workforce. I hope things don't have to be as rigid. And I, I've even noticed as I start working with more people around my age, like that email etiquette and stuff like that is kind of not becoming as important, which is I don't mind that because I like to add a cute emoji to my emails. Like I don't want to have nice. to, you know, make sure that everything is like super grammatically perfect or whatever if it's just like yeah. a back and forth. And I think like when you start to dismantle those systems that were meant to upheld you know, white supremacy in a lot of ways um, and ensure people weren't able to communicate because those are those little like subtle things. You just know if you're part of that system inherently, um, but not otherwise. I hope that, you know, as those things slowly start to fall away, there's more clear, transparent communication that allows for the calling out of the bullshittery that we're talking about. That is like the niceness without kindness. I think, you know, there's a lot of complaints about my generation with like, you know, um, quiet quitting and like rage applying and like all these buzzwords they're like coming up with that. I just recently saw people complaining that young people are not applying for jobs where the salaries are not listed anymore. Young people are only applying to jobs when they know how much money they're going to make. And they're saying, well, why even apply to a job if you're only in it for the money? 
as if anybody was ever in it for more than the money, like half the time, you know. So I th I'm proud of my generation for kind of like stepping on some of these these things. And I, I hope to see more of that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think I, I think I mentioned this before on on, on this podcast, but um, one of my grandfathers had two jobs in his entire life in a 45 year career. And um, he, he would have found the idea of, um, you know, purpose and a lot of the modern things about work. He, he would have found that just completely alien. Like the, the literal reason that he had a job was because a job was a thing you had. You showed up from nine to five for five days a week. You put in certain amounts of skill and work and you got paid for it. And it's interesting in that there were there were very few illusions about that. I think it was it was very explicitly kind of this is the deal that we work. And then more recently, you do get this thing of I'm I'm personally very attracted to the idea of more meaningful work. I think a lot of people are. And you certainly see a bunch of startup companies, especially, especially small startups, they really do want to have some genuine impact on the world and create positive change, which is awesome. But then at the exact same time, um, sharks wearing masks, right? That whole narrative of there's more to work than work then becomes this trap and it becomes a whole set of things that people fall into of mistaking the, the shark wearing a mask telling them that there's some kind of purpose in their work with the reality. And I think you saw that just this last couple of weeks. Um, the large tech companies, as we speak, have shed tens of thousands of jobs. And several of those large tech companies are exactly the ones that were telling their staff for years, we're all in this together, we're changing the world, there's a greater sense of purpose. But the instant that the math didn't work out, fuck off, your job is gone. The transaction is, is is closed and there has to be something beyond either of those extremes either just showing up to a job you hate for um basically 45 years and not complaining or um an increasingly sophisticated set of lies told to us by giant machine-like corporations there has to be something else and i certainly would um e enormously welcome um basically new people coming into the workforce and going why the fuck would i do either of these things right yeah i mean even when you bring up the idea of like the ability to only have two jobs, like the job security that would ensure that you are going to have at least, you know, half your life, this job is like, it's unthinkable. And I think that created, you know, a security that allowed for people to be okay with the reality that they don't necessarily like what they do, but it is going to give them the money. Now, People are not making money to survive and they're still expected to want to be doing the work. So it's like not only is it that extreme of like you're doing a job that is told you're told you don't really mean anything. You are just a, a cog in the machine. But on top of that, you're also not fulfilling your own needs in life. So and you're supposed to be grateful the whole time. Yeah. Like they're mad because we're like, yeah, we're doing it for the money. Like we need money to live. You made this system. <laughs> like this was the game we're supposed to be playing. So, you know, it, it, but I, I am glad that, you know, attention is being drawn to it and we're kind of seeing like these insane expectations, like, and the expectations have always been this way. I mean, it's always been you know, you need to be able to sacrifice yourself to do something you don't want to do if you if you want to survive for the most part. Um, you know, I think with 
technology and social media, we're able to see a lot more opportunities. I mean, there's plenty of people who, you know, are able to even see that jobs exist that they would have never known had existed in the past. Um, so that's, I think, a big benefit. But I also, I think it's it's pretty hard to escape either extreme um, when we live in this kind of society that we do, unfortunately. So. So if you reach that point, which I'd argue is is the the clear-eyed staring into the dark aspect, which which I very much sympathize with, um, turning it around and linking back to our earlier conversation, where do where do we find and renew passion, purpose, genuine connections? Um, one of the places that it always started for me, even even as a child, even having no idea what the fuck was going on with anything, um, I would I would be entranced by. Um, essentially imaginary worlds by certain films by certain experiences um i i think like a lot of people i got on better with essentially imaginary worlds than with real people for quite a long time but um are these one of the things that we can go back to as a well and and draw on and um really try to rebuild some core sense of doing what is worthwhile in our lives um i mean i think that Definitely. I think the passion and excitement for life a lot of people get when we leave a movie theater is kind of similar. Like it kind of brings you back to that like childlike wonder and the creation of story worlds. Um, I was recently watching a, um, a lecture on Socrates and they were kind of talking about the difference between, you know, the adult ability to imagine um, something, you know, in your head and picture it and, and be able to see it and how amazing it is that with time, you know, we're able to develop the ability to do that. But how different that is from fully embodying um, the being of something. Like if you ask me to imagine a wizard, I could do a pretty good job and I can probably draw a really funny picture of one. But, you know, to become one is kind of an ability that, that I've lost with time. But I was once able to become a wizard um, and I wish I wish that there was a way uh, to maintain that because I think being able to fully embody that and, and, and be charged by that is what would propel more people to, to follow their bliss and follow their pursuits and remember that magic is attainable um, in the present moment. But yeah, I think I think when I when I read a good book or watch a good movie and I, I leave you know, I mean, my one of my friends is super impressionable and every move she texted me yesterday and she was just like, do you think we're ever going to get to do a real Hunger Games? And I was like, are you watching the Hunger Games? And she was <laughs> like, yeah, I'm watching the Hunger Games and I really want to do it. every movie, no matter what it is. If it's about a cult, she yeah. wants to join a cult. If it's about, you know, a dance troupe, she wants to become a dancer. Like she gets so energized by them. You know, and she's also one of the least motivated people I know in real life. So like the juxtaposition is so funny, but I think it's proof that anybody, no matter how unmotivated you are, you can tap into that part of yourself. And it always makes me happy, even when she's like, would it be really bad if I became a serial killer? And I'm like, dude, are you watching Jason? And she's still like, yeah, but he's so cool. Like, I feel like I could just do that. You know, it would maybe make things easier. Like that kind of mentality, you know, we are so influenced by story. Um, and, and most of the time, those first story worlds that we create as kids do end up defining kind of our views on the world. So, so I, as you as you talk, I was just thinking, I, um, yesterday I watched the new episode of The Last of Us, which is obviously the TV show that's adapted from a, um, 
Sony PlayStation game. It was it was the third episode, and and I won't spoil it for anyone listening. But there's a real thing with a lot of those um, quiet post-apocalyptic um, things where, yes, there are variations on zombies and civilization has collapsed and all those type of things. But you're like, man, it'd be nice to be walking along that road in the, in the nice peaceful sunshine. And maybe we should have a little bit of an apocalypse and have 99% of people wiped out because that actually looks really nice. It's, it's, there's, there's that sense of, as you say, can we have an apocalypse? Can I be a serial killer? Can I do these things? It's, it's always so intense. Um, so you've said, and 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 um, this is fascinating to me, that you don't feel that you have the as as much of the tendency to be able to put on the wizard's hat as quickly as you once did, as it were. Um, when when was this at its height? I mean, I I remember um, one of the reasons that um, to me Jennifer Connelly is the most beautiful woman who's ever lived is because I saw Labyrinth at exactly the right Labyrinth. or wrong time when I was seven, and <laughs> that is just yep yep. That entire thing is imprinted so deeply on me. Every aspect of Labyrinth. I mean, you talk about wanting to kind of move into a world and live there. I was just like, can we just live in Labyrinth? I'm like, why can't I just live in Labyrinth? Oh, yeah. yeah. Labyrinth was very good. Anything with like any kind of practical like puppetry or any of that was like, I love that. Like never ending story was also like a huge one when I was younger. Um, Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, well, when I was little, I had a story world called Mylandia. Um, you know, I could probably come up with something better now, but my landia was what it was when I was four. Um, and it was something I, I came up with because I was in a Catholic school and they were pretty like, you know, harsh or harsher than I was used to. Um, and I didn't believe in, in Jesus, uh, because I wasn't raised to, my parents just put me in that school. Like they didn't uphold those beliefs at home. So it was really confusing when I would go to school and all of our lessons would be surrounding Jesus and we'd have to pray to him and stuff and I guess I was kind of like you know contrarian in that way and so I was ostracized a lot of the time or punished a lot of the time um and when I would complain about this to my dad because it was my first real experience of like systemic injustice due to religion which you know at four or five is like I guess (laughs) classic in America um but you know but he was like well you can come up with your own world that you can kind of retreat to like when you go to, to pray you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you can just kind of come up with your own stories and entertain yourself like you're watching something in your head. And I was like, okay, I can try that. So I started coming up with um, characters and then, you know, I gave the characters a place to live and then I wanted other, you know, a a system of government and then a system of currency and then planets and then obviously there's interplanetary, you know, war. And then it became this huge thing and at recess I would assign characters and everybody would get to like make up their own and we'd kind of do like a pseudo Dungeons and Dragons and obviously horrified the nuns um, with all the vampires and demons and monsters that I would come up with. Um, But, you know living in that world all throughout my schooling until I was like 13 or so. Um, if I didn't like what we were learning or I wasn't interested, I would just like close my eyes and go into that yeah. world and start writing a story. And uh, I created like, you know, a series of like short stories and stuff all surrounding those characters. And it really did help me get, uh, you know, out of uncomfortable situations. It later developed into dissociation where I replaced that universe with nothing or drugs or, you know, whatever I needed because it didn't it wasn't enough after a certain amount of time. Um, I don't know if that's because, you know, society just kind of crushes imagination in a lot of people or 
because my grades would slip when I would listen to the teacher because I was um, playing war in my head with all of my characters. Um, but yeah, but I, I definitely think that I, I survived those experiences because I was able to retreat to that place. And I've heard similar sentiments from a lot of people. So I don't think I'm alone in that. I, I asked on a game developer forum about six months ago. I was trying to describe that. And I learned for the first time that um, those are called paracosms. Paracosms. And I had, yep. And and I I had personally never heard that word before. And then I looked it up, and and it was, um, for instance, it was um, one of the ways that J.R. Tolkien thought of Lord of the Rings. Same thing. I mean, wow. I mean, obviously, um, that that passed well into adulthood. But this idea of, um, especially as children, having a, a really quite coherent and immersive, essentially second world mm-hmm. that you can return to. And then a lot of us, or I think most of us, one way or another lose that somewhere in the in the transition into our teens and 20s. And then some of us try and return or some people hold on to it. But it's a fascinating thing to me, especially because are these places real? Are they, are they, are they persistent? And I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm getting kind of like emotional thinking about it. Like, it, you know, if it's still intact in my mind, you know, I... It is like I, I'd love to yeah. think that it still exists and it's still accessible within me. But, you know, I also think about how dusty it is <laughs> and how, <laughs> how it definitely could use some work. But but I notice um, the feeling that I got when I went there psychologically, because it really yeah. feels like I went there. And I, I recognize that feeling sometimes when I'm I'm creating something now and that little glimmer of it is enough to keep me like lusting for life sometimes. So I think if we could figure out a way to access those parts of ourselves again, it can like reignite the flame in a lot of us. Because in my deepest depressions, when I feel like nothing I have to say matters and nothing I have to do will have an impact or any of that, you know, it's always something that reignites like my journeys uh, into my landia that make me want to start working again. so I think you're onto something with that, with paracosms for sure. Um, one of the ways that Tolkien described it, and, and again, let's be very clear that this is a extremely fusty Oxford Don from over a century mm-hmm. ago. So, so I, I, I don't know if the language applies much to, to either of us, but um, um, he, he'd expressed it because he was deeply Christian. He thought that God was essentially the fountainhead of all creativity mm-hmm. and it kind of flows down into everything he creates. But then if you in turn... Um, take that energy and create something yourself you're basically doing literally god's work and the, and that he thought that one of the best things you could possibly do was literally to shape something and pour your own energy into it because you're really pouring god's energy into it and that that becomes um almost like its own energy source totally i completely agree with that and like you know i know the language of god can be intimidating and you know obviously with christian like uh context can be you know not necessarily everything i stand for But I do think that God, you know, in any higher power sense is what, you know, kind of flows through us. Like we as artists, as communicators are all vessels for whatever comes out of us. We're not. And to take ownership and to, you know, assert your ego onto something usually makes it worse. So I think if anything, that's proof that we are, you know, vessels, we're channels through which ideas flow through. And we should all be grateful for any scrap of you know talent we're able to muster up because 
it's you know we were honored with the ability to be able to translate that through our souls and filter it through our souls which are an extension of god um but it doesn't mean that it it belongs to us like i get super caught up in my own art you know when i'm worried about making bad art not because I'm worried about bad art existing, I don't care, but because I'm worried that I'm going to be the one who did it and then I'm not going to be able to be the best you know, version of myself and I'm not going to be as loved and my record will be tainted or whatever it is. Like all my nerves come from like that personal attachment to the work. Um, and the second I let go of that is when I allow like God to, to flow through me. Uh, and that, it, it's such a humbling experience and it, it, it really evokes gratitude. And that's really how you tap in, I think, to those paracosms a little bit, because, um, you know, in those moments, I wasn't thinking I'm going to make the best story universe yeah. ever. I'm going to be the one who makes the best story. You know, I wasn't even thinking I'm going to make all the kids at recess like me. I was thinking like, you know, I need help. I need, you know, something that's going to get me out of this. You know, what, what can help me? And the second I closed my eyes, it was there waiting for me. You know, so and we we all have that like yearning to be helped in a way. Um, so if we can acknowledge that, you know, and then submit some will, which is really hard to do. But if we could just submit a little will, then then we can usually get get to those places. Nice, it's beautiful. It's um, it's interesting you say one one of the the hardest things um, traditionally for writing and especially theater students or or, or like people learning that craft. Um, if, if you're in the capacity of um, signing up for something like a master's of screenwriting or something, whatever it is, whatever the format is, um, you've almost all certainly put energy and time into creating an idea of yourself as like a good slash great writer. Mm -hmm. And you're then thrown into a room, as it were, with a bunch of other people, all of whom feel the same. And there's usually some kind of teacher. And everybody, everybody for the first time, part of of that learning experience um whenever it's okay everybody bring five pages next week everyone is really focused on i am going to make the best five pages mm -hmm. and i am going to make something absolutely beautiful and it's always complete shit for the first <laughs> sort of several rounds because everyone's so focused on like but how am i going to make the great thing mm -hmm. and then eventually the the best advice usually from um, smart experienced teachers is just getting people past that and getting them back into that state of relaxation that you're talking about where um, yes you've done the work and you've put the time in to learn the craft and you have kind of all the tools but you're not laser focused on what you're going to do with the tools you kind of just relax and that's when things like characters start talking to you and all that stuff works and people write really good things really quickly and it's such a slippery beast and I wonder if it's the same in your own work in different media um, it's so addictive because when you get into that state, that kind of flow state where you're not trying very hard at all and then something wonderful comes out really quickly, you're like, fuck, I did that, that's amazing. And then you spend the next month trying to get that back because you're now like trying to chase it. And it's such a difficult state to find in the first place and then to maintain, right? Yes, I think many would argue that that's the plight of the artist is like trying to <laughs> hold yourself back from, I mean, you know, most of the artists that I've met are also douchebags. Like, it's really hard not yes. to be both, including myself at times. Like, you know, I think it's really hard not to be both because if you are an artist at all, chances are you have to believe that you're doing something important enough to be doing. And it's really hard not to get caught up in that. And it's hard not to get that imposter syndrome of like, 
okay, am I the one who should be saying this? You know, and then once you start getting in your head about that and trying to prove yourself, you know, I mean, I totally relate to what you're saying about the teachers. Any creative writing class I've went to, I go in and I'm like, I'm going to be this teacher's favorite person. I'm going to give them the reason they need to keep on teaching. Like, they're going to be very impressed. I do that with my therapist. Like, when I meet a new therapist, <laughs> I, like, I like show off because I know a lot about therapy language, and they're always impressed. And then I've ruined it. And I've gotten to a point where now when I meet a therapist, I'm like, don't let me charm you. Like, it's not worth yeah. it. You're not going to help yeah. me. Like, it's how you get out of things, you know? And it's not how you get, get really deep into them. You have to have that vulnerability and you know and it's funny because vulnerability and sensitivity is what makes artists so great um but we try to conquer that and like you know harness it to to flatter ourselves a lot of the time and that's where we we trip up a lot um it's really hard especially when you're a young artist because as a young person it's like I'm so hot and so cool. Like, you know, how could I not be like, I'm perfect basically. So everything I make has to be perfect and impress everybody always. Um, and getting out of that mindset is, is super hard. <laughs> and it, as you say, it's, it's like the really kind of high level version of the problem that most people don't have, but it's like you, you have, if, if you have so many tools, and you've always been sort of the smartest or most charming or most beautiful or whatever person in any room. And it's so tempting to stay in that room and and keep doing the same tobacco tricks. Um, um, when I was growing up, the the older brother of one of my friends, um, they were they were um, they were very intellectually macho, like, you know, the the smartest kid anyone had ever met, especially in New Zealand, you know, winning at all the tests, all that sort of stuff, went to Auckland University, did really well. Um, I, I genuinely think that he had been the smartest person in every room he'd ever been in until he was probably in his early 20s. And then he went off, um, I want to say, to study uh, astrophysics at a major university. And I think he enjoyed it, but I think he had the the kind of um, um, INTJ version of what we're talking about, which is suddenly within his first month at this place, he suddenly realized all of my old tricks yeah don't really work here i finally busted through he's powerless in this realm and now what do i do yeah totally it is so humbling to like be totally like flushed out and and i've been trying to in a lot of uh social situations that i'm in and stuff to take like more of a backseat sometimes and just kind of let myself like on purpose be the quietest person in the room Instead of trying to like assert myself or prove myself, because I do think it helps to protect some peace sometimes. It's okay not to be the smartest person in the room. Um, because of course Is it because, though? Is right? it though? No, it's not. I hate it. It's so <laughs> ugly. I hate the feeling so much. But that's why, you know, I'm trying to feel it more because that discomfort is like actually so like really I mean, it's so fun to meet someone smarter. It's like you know, you get frustrated with people when you're around people and you're always like the best artist or whatever. You want to learn. Um, but then the second you do, obviously, it's like, oh, fuck this guy. Like, I remember when I was like, you know, eight years old and I was the best artist in my class. And then a new girl came in and she knew how to draw the Pokemon and she blew me out of the water. You know, I mean, my anime eyes did not compete with her being able to draw everyone's favorite Pokemon. They were lining up for her and no one cared about me anymore. And there was like such an urge to be like, OK, well, I guess, you know, fourth grade is I peaked like this is. <laughs> pretty much it for me i'm never gonna be anything again it's over you know but and that was my instinct and at first i hated her and i was like i'm never talking to her she sucks she made my life horrible um but then you know i was like hey like 
can you want to teach me how to draw a little bit <laughs> and she yeah. was like yeah nice. of course you know I, I like how you draw you can teach me how to draw that and then we became like really close friends and then you know we both got better at drawing and that's just how it goes and putting my ego aside was super hard and definitely took longer than i'm making it sound like it did but eventually <laughs> you know it, it it ended up uh helping me grow a lot so you know i'm trying to do that more but it does get harder with age because you want to keep being special i mean it's so fun especially if you were like a gifted kid um and you know and it's also infinitely difficult to be an artist when everybody has all of the tools it takes to learn how to be one now it's like like you said like you know we uh, like have when you have all these tools you know it can be it can be overwhelming and I think that that is what um we're dealing with now a lot is like I find myself like I have I can animate a whole feature film if I want to and like I want to but like knowing other people are doing it and always seeing what other people are doing like can just push you into this corner I mean I'm you know I'm applying for for college now which I'm late to the game like all my friends are graduating and I'm applying for the first time um but you know I was like I'm, I'm working on my portfolio and I was like I've seen some of the work that's come out of the school I'm applying to you know it's like some of it is like not that great maybe I can like kind of put in 75 percent and still get in and then I was like, let me just Google some people's portfolios that got in. And I Googled it. And then I was like, I cannot put in 75%. Like, I, I can't do that. That is so stupid. These people are much more talented than I was convincing myself um, they were in my head so that I'd feel better. And um, now I'm, I'm back on it. <laughs> so nice. sometimes you need that. But yeah, but finding that, that, that balance is really difficult because you don't want to overwhelm yourself with seeing what other people can do. And you don't want to assume you're always the smartest in the room, the you know biggest fish in the smallest pond or whatever. So, yes. I think it's a genuine um, problem because I'm, I'm basically old enough that um, I went through most of my basic schooling before most people had the internet. And then the, the internet oh kind of God. arrived, at least in New Zealand, like so in my last year of high school. I know, <laughs> ancient. It's, it's, it's so good to talk across the millennia with someone eventually. It's great. Um, but it was a thing of you really could, um, um, you could pretend and imagine to yourself and that the entire world wasn't out there. Like when I was 14 or whatever, I, I would not have had access to the, the global work of the best artists or the best up and coming writers or the best musicians or whatever. I, and, and so you can just kind of pretend and all you really start to conquer is the kind of space around you. And I definitely think that one thing the internet does really strongly is um, it leaps you from, I'm not doing this thing to I'm doing this thing in direct stack ranked competition with every single person on earth. And that's a really tricky thing to jump, right? Like, like there's not that sort of intermediate bit where you're kind of the local hero, you're getting good on a local scale. You're like a boxer coming up and you're kind of doing the little amateur rounds and you don't have to worry about the, the world heavyweight title belt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, it's hard because I, I've lived in New York my whole life and I was raised here. And I think, sure. you know, we in major cities, like whether or not we have the Internet, we kind of are exposed to that because your friend's parent is probably one of the most famous people in the world. <laughs> like, yeah, um, sure. but yeah, that is definitely made a lot harder when you're scrolling through your Instagram and you see 
you know, your best friend and then your mom and then Beyonce and then your favorite artist and then the person you hate the most in the world. Like, it's like it totally messes you up. And like and yeah, it stacks you in in this ranking system that like most teenagers and early 20s have not had to really think of themselves in. And I think it's it's especially difficult a lot of the time for, you know, women and minorities because, you know, you're competing for like the position of being the best at the thing within your identity. Um, and we're pit against each other because there's only so many roles for us in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, so like that becomes integral, like that, that ranking becomes integral to like, am I going to be the woman that does this? Am I going to be the gay person that does this? Am I going to be the whatever that does this? You know, because there's not room for everybody, it seems. But, you know, I think that's growing and I think that's changing. And I hope that our relationship with, you know, viewing ourselves amongst all this gets a little bit easier. But I really don't think humans were supposed to see this many people at once ever. No. Um, and, and, and then going counter the other way, is there a way out of this? So, so one of the things that I just heard from you um, was a, an extremely smart and very self-aware understanding of... Um, the various levers, the various tools, the various environments that you're trying to succeed in. And you're looking at other people making comparisons and essentially building strategies to succeed in these environments, all of which makes total sense to me. It's really awesome. The counter and the reverse to this is a few times in my life, only a few times, I've known people who were um, who, who, who could not think in that way because they were so utterly immersed in the medium that they were doing their art in. That they were lit. So I, I have known someone for quite a while who is a musician and um, he is one of the smartest and stupidest people I've ever met. <laughs> He's he literally, without any exaggeration, um, lives, breathes, dreams, imagines in music. I think his paracosm would literally be a world constructed of music that he would just fly through. And his ability to create things on the spot that I think most people would spend their lifetimes trying to shape is, is absolutely incredible. But because of this, because of this total immersion of his, his entire brain basically living and breathing music, he has no strategies for life or his professional career. And I'm sure we've both maybe met people like this. He, he would never imagine sort of looking across the competitive field and assessing and trying to find his place in moving forward on a career. And as a result, he's produced some of the most amazing music I've ever heard. And his life is a wreck because he's simply so. So this is the, the kind of flip side of um, being able to navigate these spaces. Is there a point with our art, with our paracosms, with our inner worlds where sometimes it's so overwhelming that you, you actually don't have that option? Is that what we want? Do we want to be that swallowed up? No. Or is there some kind of Oh medium? my God, no, but yeah, but most of us, I think, are in a sense. I mean, you know, I would love to be as dedicated to something as it sounds like your friend is to music. I'm not, but I am, you know, close to him and how difficult it is to gather my life. <laughs> and I think a lot of us who have anxiety and a lot of us who, I think that hypersensitivity that so many artists yeah. have sometimes can be extremely crippling. And when you're kind of taught that, you know, if you want any chance at pursuing your passion and doing what you want in life, you have to throw yourself into it completely, you know, and we don't really have much guidance on how to do that or the steps to take to bring something into practicality that is so conceptual. Like that leaves a lot of people just like 
sitting in a room piled with you know their work and then no knowledge of how to how to bring that forward because it's it's shut down a lot like that you know in kids and in and people just that only a few will make it um and you're probably not going to be one of those people um i think i guess it has to we have to have like an attitude shift and kind of teach people how to use their passion as as a motivation and as a fuel that uh transcends just the creation itself and also like but you know but you have to have a, a certain level of confidence to do that and, and and in the world we're talking about you kind of have to have some of that you know capitalist psychopathy that allows you to to step on the people you need to step on or whatever to get seen um and that's not how a lot of people like to do things a lot of people are comfortable making the best song in the world and then keeping it a total secret I think that's, you know, kind of like blasphemous almost, but, <laughs> but yeah, but it is, you have to make a trade off kind of for sure. I was going to ask, and, and, and this is the exact question that, and, and, I'll, and I'll start to steer us home, but so, so Evangelia, you've got, um, in true labyrinth style, you've got two doors and behind one door is, um, you can be at the very top of whatever you choose to be doing. What whatever medium you want to express yourself in, people will absolutely see and acknowledge you as being in total command of this. Um, at the same time, you you will be forced to do some things that possibly go against the natural inclination of your soul in terms of career realities. And you will not, um, you will not learn any more than you know today about how to kind of manage your emotional cycles so that's one door massive success but you probably won't grow other door other labyrinth door that jennifer connelly is standing in front of as we speak <laughs> in my mind um you um you continue to heal you um learn a lot more about yourself you connect as it were much more with trees as it were in every level um, you become a person who can wake up and on a fundamental level, enjoy your life, whatever that means to you. Most people will not know who you are, but you will have the tools to navigate your own life and build whatever you want, but it won't be, you know, Beyonce. If it's, if, if it's one door or the other. Um, this feels like a trick. <laughs> this feels like there well, the is, is right Um... There is no right no, answer. Yeah, you're it's, right. It's, and it's genuinely honestly, interesting it's very hard for me to answer this question. I would love to be happy, of course. And I, I will I would I will choose to grow, obviously, but only because um my work won't be able to truly make the difference uh in people that I would want it to if I wasn't also growing. Um, so I don't, cause I don't, I don't want to be like Beyonce. Like I don't want to be famous, you know, necessarily. I mean, I would like to, because I want um, to be loved and hot, obviously. But, um, but it's, it, that doesn't mean anything to me. If, if I wanted to just do that, like I would just make an OnlyFans or like, you know, get super famous on TikTok or something like that. Like I'm sure I could sure. figure it out. It's not that hard, um, but. You know, I want to make work that even if it only touches a few people does truly fundamentally um, touch people. And I don't think I don't I think people can tell when that's vapid 
Um, and and that's really important to me. So so yeah. So I would I would go with the the right answer. That is the right answer. You did trap me a little bit. No. With that one. Have, has anybody picked the other one? Is that? Oh, I I've never asked it on the podcast. But oh, for instance, okay. I absolutely I know people and have seen people across a bunch of different fields who have consciously chosen the other one. Wow. Well, I don't know. Maybe because look, it's hard when I can't see it in front of me. Look, if you open yeah. the briefcase yeah. Yeah. and you showed me yeah. the life. <laughs> maybe the answer would be different like i'm i'm in a cutie mood right now so i'm gonna pick the more down-to-earth answer but next week maybe but yeah but because who is, knows i mean it is I, it is really I, hard i mean i'd love to be the top of my field obviously and that is a sacrifice that like anybody who is a billionaire or even a multimillionaire ha has to make you have to be okay yeah. with and, and it's it's hard because no matter what we're living on a system that benefits from people suffering i mean in a way where i'm already you know where i am because other people are are not where they should be you know where they are being exploited i wouldn't be able to wear this shirt that was probably mass produced if somebody hadn't been making it you know at their own expense um so you know it, it's a lot harder to see what the effects of what we do are when it happens slowly when that success comes to us slowly to realize um that in injustice so in reality i don't know uh it's much easier to say right here what i would choose but but i do think it it would be really hard to to tell i mean for me you know i i think of any of the things that really affected me and shaped me in terms of pieces of art i mean you know my um one of my favorite comic books is um the invisibles by grant morrison or various favorite films and, and, and if you if you literally as you say had a briefcase and inside that briefcase there's okay you will get to make something that affects a lot of people the same way that this thing affected you if i could if 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 the magic evil genie of the labyrinth is is going you can make something with the equivalent effect of the invisibles to people i do suspect that i'd be i'd be eyeing that door and i'd be like well I like I like enjoying my days, but oh, that's oh, yeah, it's a totally uh, yeah. But, you but know, then, the more I think said, about it, the the more I start like, <laughs> like yeah, no, totally. I mean, if you know, I was able to make some like Adventure Time level awesomeness and be recognized for it, appreciated for it, and you know, and and touch people still while also you know reaping the benefits of exploitation. It's kind of like oh, yep. it's hard yep. to do. It's hard to decide. We do that anyways in so many ways. So yeah, so it's really it is difficult. And all the and all the price you pay aside from things you just said is that you you'll your you your um, own inner turmoil, whatever it is for each of us, would would never die down. You would you would uh, be continually. Oh, I might change my answer because <laughs> you know I have a like, sneaking suspicion that my inner turmoil will it will always kind of haunt me a little bit. Um, but I, I do need to grow too. I do kind of need to grow if I'm going to be okay. I, I you know, I, I'm pretty good at driving myself into the ground secretly. So I, I want to get worse at that and better at, you know, doing things on a more present level. Um, but, uh, you know, you might have to get back to me in a few years. <laughs> I might have to be a fascinating experiment. It'll be the tree experiment. We can, we can just check in on, on the growth of the tree every few years and see, totally. and, and see how that one's going. <laughs> yeah um this has been great Vangelia. thank you so much thank you um 
where can your billions of adoring masses find you? Um, where can they get in early on on mm-hmm. the yes the thing that's going to happen? Totally, I yes. Now that I've tainted myself morally publicly, um, people can definitely find me on Instagram at Evangelulu, which is spelled like my name, but the last letters are L U L L U, and um, listen to my podcast. Uh, you can also follow that at What's Gonna Happen Pod on Instagram. Um, and yeah, and if you're interested in talking or anything, you can DM me on both. I pretty much always answer. This has been great. We're going to talk afterwards, but for now, thank you very much, Evangelia Artemis Gomez. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.